0: the prayer. Uh, as I said earlier, this is the start of our spring lectureship. There are outlines in the foyer outside, and if you don't have one, Fred's got a handful of them, so if you just raise your hand, we can get those out to you. Fred, there's some out oh, this way. So as I said earlier, uh, the spring lectureship It's going to be uh, loosely titled Questions from the Bible, Uh, and specifically today's lesson or lecture will be from the book of Malachi, or the book of Malachi, which really is a book of questions and also, interestingly enough, answers. One of my favorite quotes from Abraham Lincoln, surely God would not have created such a being as man with the ability to grasp the infinite to exist only for a day. No, man was made for immortality. Man is different from all the other creatures and creations on this earth. Uh, He operates at a higher level than the lower animals, which is... Reasonable considering how he was created. In Genesis 1:26 and 27 said, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that it creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we think about how man was created in the image of God and there are certain things that uh, fall out from that as we think about ourselves, uh, how we are, what we are, what our relationship is to God, which in itself is a question, why am I here, is there a God, what does he want from me? So, when we think about those things and we think about then, and we deal more def, uh, deeply into the topic, we think about first of all, because we're made in the image of God, well, what does that mean? What are the characteristics of God? When we talk about the characteristics of God, you know, there's always three things that pop out, you know, always three attributes that come to our mind omniscience, being all knowing, omnipotence, being all powerful, and omnipresence, being everywhere. Or the ability to be everywhere. We are made in the image of God. But we don't share those particular (laughs) attributes. Uh, I haven't been able to occupy two places at one time yet. I'm working on it. Uh, We do share another attribute though. Personhood. God is a person. Theologians often define a person as an individual being. Okay? An individual being with a mind, emotions, intellect and will. God has a mind, he has intellect. Psalms one thirty nine, seventeen says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them? God has emotions. Genesis six, six. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. God has a will. First Corinthians one, one, Paul, addressing the church there, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So God has all of these attributes that we think of as being a person and more. And we could, but that's not a lesson about the attributes of God. But we do understand that God is a person. We were created in his image And because of that, we can begin to infer certain things. God made man in his image. He created man as a living, breathing soul with the ability to comprehend the infinite. That is, he has the ability to think in abstract terms and complex concepts. What are the distinguishing characteristics between man and the lower animals besides the soul? Well, is is it not the ability and capacity for thought, emotion, and will. Unlike animals who are born knowing what to do from the the point that they are born, salmon spawns up river and goes there every year to spawn again. The birds and the bees and the butterflies all fly migratory patterns. They didn't learn these things. They were born with them. But man learns. He, has, he learns from his environment, the stimulus that presents itself to him. He depends upon intelligence, not instinct. One of the attributes of intelligence would be speech. Not a rudimentary kind of speech, but language sufficient for expressing complex thought and concepts like love, hate, Equality, fairness, right and wrong, sin and forgiveness, mercy, grace. These are concepts that an animal would not be able to follow. But yet we can find words for love in every language of, that it's on the face of the planet. It's a different word, but it's the same concept. These are things that accrue to us because we were made in the image of God. God's a person. He speaks and we speak. You know, idols don't speak. And they don't move on their own either. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold, for they fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. Let me repeat again. They cannot speak, and they have to be carried. They can't move, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them. For they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. Jeremiah 10, 1 through 5. But said earlier, God speaks. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Through Him also He created the world. Hebrews 1, 1. God speaks. In various sundry ways. He speaks through His creation, but more directly, He speaks to us by words. He communicates to us His will through words. He speaks and expresses His desires. He expresses His emotions. He communicates. God speaks, as I said, in various ways, He commands. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. He declares. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, enemies. Genesis 22:15 through 17. And of course, he interrogates or asks questions as well. Who is that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? An excellent question, by the way, Job 32:38 verse two. So we'll get down to maybe a discussion on questions for just a second before we actually get into our lesson topic today. Questions, there are actually different kinds of questions, just like there are different kinds of speech, you know, uh, commands, declaration, uh, questions, and so forth. There are actually various kinds of questions. Questions can be declarative, interrogative, or rhetorical, declarative. It's usually donated denoted, excuse me, denoted by a special voice. Is it raining again? That's the third time this week. That's a declarative question. Interrogative. Interrogative. I haven't had trouble speaking this morning, by the way. Who won the game? I know who won the game. We didn't. <laughs> Rhetorical. A rhetorical question is asked when the questioner himself already knows the answer or the answer is not actually a demanded. A rhetorical question is used to emphasize a point or draw draw or elicit out a response from someone. Since God already knows everything, I'm going to make a statement that most of his questions are going to be rhetorical. Now, He doesn't have to ask Adam in the garden, where are you? He really already knew. But he called Adam out by asking the question. There's actually one other type of question. This is uh, a request. And that may seem strange because because it's a special type of question. It's actually a bit of a command. Uh, who is there even among you who will shut the doors So that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain, I have no pleasure in you," says the Lord of Hosts, "nor will I accept an offering from your hands." That's from the Book of Malachi. We don't think about it as as necessarily as a command, but it's a polite way of making a command. If God asks you, please do something. I'm not going to argue with God. That's a command. As I said earlier, the theme for this lectureship is questions from the Bible, and in that sense, is a rather loose theme because the questions themselves may or may not be connected one to another. They don't necessarily build on one or the other, but they represent uh, the viewpoint of questions that interest, that align with a particular interest, or uh, maybe impart some special knowledge that uh, is good for everyone. And when we uh, brought out the questions that, and for our lecture speakers to, to pick from, I generated a list of 40 questions just right off the top of my head and could have generated 400. And I gave and said, here, pick a topic. But if you don't like the question I got, pick one uh, of your own. And some of them did. So I think you'll find that uh, the, the lectures this quarter are very individualistic in that not only was the choice of the question to be answered, but the approach for for answering that topic uh, was very very individualized. So, questions from the Bible. God asked questions, and men ask questions. Men ask questions of God. Why am I here? You know, we can learn much from the questions. And the answers that God asks and gives to men's questions or the questions he asked of men. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? What is truth? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What does the Lord require of you? What is your life? Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of life. These are all important questions. I don't think there's a person here today that wouldn't say these are important questions. They're critical to us, to who we are, to what we're about, what we're doing, to our eternal destiny. So that's a brief introduction to the to what we're being we'll be doing this uh, this quarter. So more specifically, today I'm going to be talking about the Book of Malachi. Uh, it's kind of ambitious to take a to take a whole book and hope to get it done here now in, in about 30 minutes. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. It's the last communication from God to the nation of Israel before it goes into the what we typically call the 400 years of Silas. Before the fullness of time when God finally fulfilled his promise to, to Abraham that In his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed with the coming of the Christ Jesus, Savior with us, God incarnate in flesh. You know, this all, when the book of Malachi occurred in the time frame which it occurred, this occurred after the Babylonian exile. The Israelites began to return from Babylonia, uh, Babylonian captivity around 538 B.C., uh, and only 50,000 initially returned. Com- contrast that to when the children of Israel left the land of Egypt. They went in 70 strong and came out well over a million, maybe two million. Some estimates will put it up between two and a half to three million. 50,000 people would fill up a small stadium in a nation of hostile, uh, with hostile environment of other peoples. 50,000 people don't look like a whole lot. I wonder how those folks felt going back. They went back, they started going back 538 B.C., the completion of the temple, rebuilt was around 520 to 516 B.C. So it took somewhere in the, in the range of at least 18 years to do, to rebuild the, t- the first temple. And it wasn't near as glorious as the uh, the second temple was. It wasn't near as glorious as the first temple. It said that the older people that had seen the first temple wept when the foundations were laid for the second. Some of the younger ones wept with joy, but the older ones wept because they saw the loss of the grandeur that had been the first temple and it wasn't replicated in that, in that uh, overall scope. Nehemiah, we think, we talk about, we think about that, that time and period and the, the two people that come to mind, of course, were Ezra and Nehemiah, who came back from Persia with, with, with the returnees and, uh, were instrumental in several things. The building of the temple. Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls around 445 to 444 B.C. And the the dates from the book of Malachi are are 460 to 432 B.C. So we kind of get an idea. We can't really pin down uh, the exact date, but the book of Malachi was written at about the same time that Nehemiah would probably have been there. There They probably may have been contemporaries uh, if not Actual contemporaries, they would have been in the same time frame. They they shared the same set of grievances with the people. You know, the returnees came back to a desperate situation. The land was inhabited by peoples that had been transplanted by the Persians or had migrated in over the exile. Many of the people there were hereditary enemies of the children of Israel. The temple temple had been destroyed. The walls were torn down. The city was desolate. The returnees faced opposition from the current inhabitants. They lived in fear. They let, they, and to add to the, to the situation, there was a drought in the land. Crops weren't yielding as it should. They had to pay taxes to a foreign government. They were in tribute to another nation. Part of what they're, they're, they made went elsewhere. They had to depress the economy. Uh, but, you know, when things start to improve, what's well, the first thing to do? Oh, wow. And this is the first thing we do. We take a deep breath and we start spending money. Oh, well, if I spend money, I've got to get money. I get a little greedy, Donna. This is what happened to the Israelites. You know, the, their history would have told them about the glories of the old temple, the, the might of, of David's kingdom, and the riches of Solomon reign, Solomon's reign. You know, what it came back to was a a desolate country. They were a a third-rate... Well, actually, they weren't even a third-rate force. They were nothing. They were no longer great. They were no longer feared. They were unhappy. They were disappointed. You know, what what we find here is that, that this wasn't new. This was actually entrenched. And we go back to Haggai... Which is also wrote in the same period says in the second year of Darius the king in the sixth month on the first day of the month the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shehil Shitil the, the governor of Judah and to Joshua the son of Z- Jehozadak the high priest thus says the Lord of hosts these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet is is it time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have fear Feel. You clothe yourselves, but know what is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why? Each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its produce. So this is not something just brand new that Malachi was addressing. This has been going on for 60 years. And if we want to say, it's probably going on for longer than that. One thing they did overcome was the sin of idolatry going after idols. But there are other Things that were troubling them hadn't gone away. Book of Malachi is unique in that God makes accusations and, in turn, answers his own accusations as if he were the people speaking. He supplies the rep- response for them. And there, depending on how you you parse it out, there's there's six or more sets of these questions and responses uh, that we can find. Uh, I parsed it down to six, but I think others may have gone as far as eight. Malachi, by the way, means my messenger. It could be an actual literal name of a person, but it also could be a descriptive title. So if we look at the book of Malachi 1 1, it could be translated separately as the oracle that is the burden in the New King James Version of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Or it could be the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by my messenger. So it's kind of a a small point. But the point is that for the the prophets, the word of the Lord was a burden. God had spoke to them, had inspired them, and they felt a tremendous burden and weight to speak. Questions and responses, the first set. I have loved you, said the Lord. But you say, How have you loved us? It's not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, They may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. We can certainly see that in this first set, that that being in the midst of a nation now that's overrun by really what was their hereditary enemies and beset on every side, maybe they felt that way. How can we be the people of the Lord when all of our enemies are still here? And who's loved? Is it us or them? So... A lot of questions troubled them. The second set of, of, of question and response. God said, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, and where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon the offer. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table was to, may be despised? How? When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? It was certainly against the Levitical law. And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is it not evil? You say, entreat the, fa- the favor of God that He be, be, may be gracious to us. So while they were despising the table, they were t- turning around and asking the pri- priest to entreat God. To be gracious to them. On one hand, they were giving offerings and sacrifices that were insulting. But yet, on the other hand, asking for blessings. And God says, with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of Hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. And though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce for it covers one garments with violence understand, you know, grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Well, that's you know, my wife, since my youth, you know, she's kind of kind of gotten used to her. You know, it's the same old thing every day. That, that pagan woman over there, she looks pretty good. I think I'll just divorce my wife and go marry her. Now, God didn't say he, hey, you know, that's not a good idea. Uh, you know, I really don't like that. What he said was, I hate it. You're doing violence. You are breaking the vows that you made to the wife of your youth, to the promises that you made. We think about promises in the context of promises, and we understand what promises are. And promises are important. Promises go to the core of who we are. And we can't make a promise and keep it. What does it say about our trustworthiness? When we divorce our mate, we do violence to God and to His laws, to ourselves, to our to our wives. Said four, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, "How have we wearied Him by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord?" And he delights in them. Or by asking, "Where is the God of justice?" The Lord responds, "Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple." But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? And he will purify the sons of Levi. That's a promise from God, by the way. There, because of what they've been doing, he was going to clear, cleanse his house. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift, a a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and those who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. The children of Israel had really gotten... Mm -hmm. Deep down into social injustice. They were so concerned with what they needed for themselves that they were mistreating orphans and widows and travelers. They weren't being hospitable, which is really, we think about it, was something that was really and truly God like, is hospitality. They sacrificed it all. ...for what they could get their hands on. The set, set five. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes... ...and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions... Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And finally, the last set of questions and responses. God speaks. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? And you say, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or our walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. And in that day, I will make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the ones who serves God and one who does not serve him. So we have then this dialogue between God... And his people consisting of questions to them or rather charges to them and their responses and his responses back to that. And we think about that, you know, and and think about what it was we just read in its context and maybe try to summarize some of that a little bit. The Israelites were dissatisfied. They were discontent. They had expectations that were not met. They thought God didn't love them. The priest dishonored God. They despised his name. And by despising his name, they despised him. God's name and his person are synonymous. They're one and the same. You despise his name, you despise him. And they were they were despising God. And they did that by accepting from those that came to the temple to offer sacrifice. they were accepting from them sick and diseased and lame and halt, animals, when the political law clearly said, "The best. You pick out the best." the people were looking at this oh I don't want to give to the Lord my best I mean I need to keep my best I build my herds up I can't build my herds up from sick animals let me give the sick here here would you take this and we'll use it instead and the priest said sure you know we can make supposition as to why the priest were doing that maybe they were getting kickbacks on the side I really don't know Maybe the the animals they were taken back, the parts that were being burnt were not part of the, that that came into be as part of their lot. Maybe what was being discarded was was not necessary for their well being or their upkeep. But nonetheless, does it really matter? It was God's law. When we think about. Sacrifice and what the sacrificial system meant, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, what that meant, it was a shadow of what was to come, a shadow of what was going to come, happen 400 years later when God's best came, God's perfect one came, and became the perfect sacrifice. Yet here they were accepting. Imperfect sacrifices. Does God, was God going to accept, accept an imperfect sacrifice for our sins? If we, if we really kind of think about it, we can see how what they were doing was subverting the illustration that, Christ, that God was trying to make to the, to the people and to the world. a deep concept isn't it if we think about it and how what seems to be just simple graft really has different connotations and levels of meaning that goes even beyond beyond that and all the while they were offering what was sacrifices that were impure uh, uh, imperfect not the best All the while, they were still imploring God for blessings. You know, they were offering second best and expecting the best back. They wanted him to open the doors of heaven and just flood them with blessings. The men divorced their wives in favor of pagan women that complained. They wept and groaned. That's what the, the prophet says. They wept and groaned. Because God no longer regarded their offerings. They argue that God was unjust because the wicked prospered while they did not. And yet they mistreated the poor. The widows, the hired hands, the travelers. (laughs) You you think about it. It's it's pretty uh, duplicitous. And and I don't even have words to describe it. You know, here you you want God to, to treat you good. And and you're mistreating widows and orphans and higher you're not even paying the, the people that work for you their due wages. They gotta eat too. You withhold from them the wages that they were due. It's pretty despicable when you think about it. They thought worship to God was tedious. They were always rebellious and unrepentant. They failed to give God the proper tithe that was their responsible due. That is, they were, truthfully, they were ungrateful. Because if you're grateful, you're going to give back to the Lord. But they were ungrateful. They didn't see that he had been doing enough for them. So why should I give back to him all that I have? They said it was useless and unprofitable to serve the Lord. What's the point? They argued there's no profit in serving the Lord. Do we serve the Lord for profit? Is that why we serve God? It's a question that that they needed to answer. Well, in short, what was their problems? They had an attitude problem. First of all, I mean, let's just call it what it is. They, They had an attitude problem. You know, they were expecting all the wrong things. They focused their desires on the wrong things. You know, just like when when the Christ came, he didn't fit the mold of the Christ, the Savior, that they were expecting. They expected him, the, the Savior, to come back and establish another kingdom, a physical kingdom on the earth to rival what David had. That's not what God came back to do. They expected a physical king, kingdom with all its trappings and not a, a national spiritual rebirth. They looked at the prophecies of Isaiah and talked about the, the refreshing of the land and the gathering together of the peoples and the respect that they were, the nation was going to have. And they thought it was all talking about, oh, this is, we're going to be what we were before. And God was talking about spiritual blessings, a spiritual nation that was going to be coming about. A spiritual renewal. They missed it. Entirely. They became focused on the cares of the life and getting ahead. I don't know if I got this in earlier. I, uh, later on, the, out the, the, the lesson this past Sunday night when dealing with the Word talked about throwing the seed out and it landing among the thorns. The thorns were, as when Jesus talked about uh, what the meaning of the parable was, was the thorns were the cares of this life that choked out the word. Those weren't external thorns, by the way, folks. Those were internal. They were up here. The cares of the world exist up here. You let the cares of the world into your head and you become more concerned with what i got and what I don't have. What my neighbors got and what that, that, that I don't have. What can I have to get what can? What do I need to do to get ahead? Those are the cares of life. And this is what happened to them. They were focused on that. So self became more important than keeping God's commandments. Gaining wealth more important than service. They became short-sighted. All they could see was this life. There was no advantage in serving God. And let's do what everyone else does because obviously God can't or won't do anything. Service and obedience to God became a burden. So we think about that. You know, maybe a, a summarization or a nutshell Maybe be too, too superficial, but hopefully it, it captures where the people were at we think about the, the the people and the children of Israel though and uh, was it different? Is, is today that much different from then? Or are they that much different from us? We look down at, at them and we, we 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 wag our head and stick out our tongue, is that was the, the phraseology we use, you know. We look at them, oh those those terrible people, look what they did. Look how they lived. Can't couldn't they see? Oh, how could they miss that? You know, disenchantment, discontent, discouragement. Does that happen only then, or does it happen now? A lack of respect or trust in God. That happened only then, or does it also happen now? A lack of faithfulness to God. Only then, or today too? We of doing good, not grateful. Only then. Or now too. Lack of faithfulness to wives and and or husbands. Only then? Or has that happened today too? Greed. Covetousness. Materialism. Then only? Or today as well? Insincerity. Then only? Or today too? We mistreat our spouses and others. Their prayers were hindered. To happened today too? Or was that just something that occurred that they did? I think if we are really honest with ourselves, we will say, yeah, it happens today too. They weren't unique or special in that respect. What was their problems? Certainly could be our problems as well. Different nations, same problem. You know, we talk about the, the Israelites as a physical nation. We are The children of Israel today, we are a nation as well. We're a spiritual nation. We have the same problems as a church. Is Christianity a blessing or a burden? This is an excerpt, by the way, from uh, the Auburn University Beacon. Uh, I get that, and you probably get it as well. And There was uh, one of the the topics in there was under this uh, heading, and it was by... Wayne Jackson the name of the title was do we delight to do his will it takes only a casual observer to note that religion as practiced by some members of the body of Christ seems more of a burdensome drudgery that is but painfully tolerated there is that type of saint who drags sleepy eyed into Sunday morning service having skipped a bible study because it does not pique his interest the hours' worship activities are endured with a zombie-like stare revealing a maximum boredom. These poor souls do not scruple to absent themselves on Sunday evening or from a midweek Bible study. Once a week is sacrifice aplenty. Do they ever talk of spiritual matters? No, more often their interests are confined to the worldly. Social media is a proof enough of where their heart treasures most. And their financial support of the Lord's work wouldn't even pay for the communion bread they absentmindedly consume. They are listless, lukewarm, and lifeless. They grumble and actually are just plain miserable. Here's a self-quest. Do I ever feel that God doesn't love me or hasn't kept his promises? Have I ever done less than my best in worshiping God? Is going to worship tiring and burdensome? Is it a blessing or drudgery? Is there anything that stands between myself and effective communication with God? do I have sin that is causing my prayers to be hindered have I ever accused God of not rewarding me appropriately do I envy the wicked or what the wicked has or how they have got it have I ever withheld from God his due do I really trust God enough to give when it is a true sacrifice do I become easily discouraged do I lack perseverance my last title slide what can I do When I printed this out last night, my printer printed one page and stopped, and it was this page that said, "What can I do?" (laughs) I called Abby. (laughs) What can I do? Take heed, lest you fall. The church at Ephesus was warned because they had left their first love, maintaining the wandering joy that we first felt as Christians. That's critical. We can't do without it. Be delighted to do God's will. Why are we here? It's a basic question. Why are we here? If we're not here to do as God wills, then we're wasting our time. Psalms 48 says, I delight to you to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Knowing and keeping God's law in our heart is critical. All service and worship must spring from love. We've got to persevere. Don't let the thorns choke you out. You count your blessings. That's pretty much basic. You've got to count your blessings. You've got to lay up your treasures, not on this earth, not, not on the things of this earth, but in heaven. This is not where we're going to wind up. We can't take it with us. We, this life will end. And what will we have done in this life that carries forward? God says our, our, our deeds will be judges in the end. What we do is more important than what we have. Remember, there's always a judgment looming and not everything is set right in this life. But God will judge and will set things to appropriately when He judges. You know, sometimes we put in a dime and expect a dollar out. You know, look what I've done for the Lord. you know, we've got to set our minds on the right expectations. We've got to keep it there, too. And like Haggai said, consider your ways. Consider what you are doing. And remember that blessings come after the effort, not before. We've got to put in the effort. We've got to, we've got to do, the, do the will of God to expect the blessings of God. The bell's about to ring. <laughs> I hope uh, it hasn't been too boring. I appreciate your attention. Thank you.